Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. What's shaking and baking, my marketing people? Welcome to another episode of the show. Today, joining me is Amy Zeidelman. She is the co-founder and CEO at Sum Foods. Amy, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing awesome. I'm excited to have you on. We got to uh, meet face-to-face briefly at Expo West like two, two, three weeks ago now. So excited to now to re- record this and talk shop a little bit. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So I want to hop right in. You started Zoom Foods. I want to go back to kind of this inception point. One, I know you started it with your sisters. Was there like this idea sitting around a table? We should do this. Was the passion for tahini always there? Like, Take me back to that early point that said we should start a business. Sure. Well, the joke is that my oldest sister, Shelby, had a business degree. My middle sister, Jackie, married a tahini expert, and I just needed a job. So, you know, there's a way to start a business. But actually, this was back in 2011. I was a senior at University of Delaware. My oldest sister, Shelby, studied entrepreneurial management at Wharton at UPenn. And Jackie, true to the, you know, the joke, had been living in Israel and is now dating Omri, her now husband, for a little while and getting to know his very small tahini business. And, you know, as we got to know Omri better, got to understand the importance of tahini as an ingredient in Israeli cuisine, and also really just taste the difference of good tahini compared to what we thought or knew was available in the States, it just sparked a lot of questions, which was what is available in the States? Why don't people use tahini more, you know, and on and on and on. So there was no we're raised by two entrepreneurs, but we weren't, you know, making lemonade stands or like starting businesses together as kids. But I just think that the timing was right. The passion was right. The types of skills and interests that we had given the stage of our lives and starting this business were right. And so we were dumb and young and we were like, let's try this. I love it too. At that age, right? When it's like, all right, why not? What's the risk isn't as much, you know, you always hear that in people in their 20s are like, yeah, let's do this because we don't know what we don't know. So we go dive in head first and kind of learn as we go. So Tahini, you're there, you start. How has it been, or I guess as a getting those first customers, was it a focus, you know, on the Israeli community, Israeli American communities throughout the US to be like, okay, let's go into, you know, this area of New York and try to get the retailers? Or was it more broad? Like how were those initial you know, sales, where did you walk through to really start to be like, okay, let's get people getting the product and really incorporating it into their dishes. Yeah. If you get to know tahini and for anybody listening, that's not familiar with what it is, it's ground sesame seeds. So 100% roasted and ground sesame seeds. It's used in Israeli, North African, Indian, Asian cuisine. I mean, sesame paste as an ingredient is very versatile, but it's probably most familiar in the American market because it's used to make hummus. So with all of that as a background and also at the time evaluating trends like 
keto and paleo and the nut-free, you know, growing allergies. And then also understanding the versatility of the ingredient. I had a list of every ice cream store, every grocery store, every sub shop, or I should say hoagies because I'm from Philly or I live in Philly now, every restaurant, every co-op, like I know, and I still do believe that tahini can go everywhere. And then I just started pounding the pavement. But what we ended up stumbling into was the fact that really great chefs and restaurants that are already using tahini, but don't have access to good tahini, no different than the consumers that those few people that were already using tahini and could use better tahini presented us with with an amazing channel. So we were able to start selling to restaurants actually since day one of Sum Foods. So we were never focused on the ethnic or cultural aspect of tahini. As a company, we were really committed to making tahini a more familiar ingredient to the average American consumer and penetrating the entire American market not just, you know, one subsection of it. So we had a lot of opportunity. We threw spaghetti at a wall and saw what stuck, but what really presented itself was the chance to sell tahini to restaurants and eventually nationally to restaurants as well. Was that the biggest growth lever then going through the restaurant on-premise kind of channel or so? It it was. It was the biggest growth level. That's hard for me to say. It was the greatest source of not just revenue for Sum Foods, but also brand credibility. The fact that we were selling to chefs and restaurants that had a lot more influence than a small, lowly, you know, young brand like Sum really helped us to amplify our reach and be able to validate the brand much faster than, you know, if we were to try to find our place on social media or like build the brand direct to consumers. So it not just provided a great foundation for revenue for the business, but also provided a great foundation for the brand itself, even though we weren't in a stage to really start investing into the brand because we weren't a primarily consumer packaged goods company yet. That makes sense, right? Especially when you look at like brand positioning and anchoring to, hey, it's good enough for Chef Johnny Joe. It's also going to be good enough for you, good enough for your kitchen. Like, And people can have that reference point, that initial, oh, if it's good enough for a restaurant chain, I recognize it'll be good enough for my restaurant chain. And that gives that credibility, like you're saying, right? And then before moving into, okay, now you have more and more dishes coming out of these restaurants with tahini. Okay, consumers want it more. That rising tide raising all ships to now I'm like, oh, I had something really good at that restaurant. I want to make it at home. How do I go find those sauces? How do I go find that spice? How do I go find the tea? Like, I'm going to now go through my, you know, Whole Foods and try to find find those products, right? Right, exactly. Um, and you marry it with the rise of food media that was really exploding, you know, seven, five years ago. Also, influencer and social media, you know, all of this was right timing for Zoom Foods. And it was nice because let's say they do find out that a great restaurant in San Francisco chooses to use Zoom. We weren't distributed in San Francisco or quite, we were only in one or two very fancy stores like Buy Right Market. And we chose to put the product on Amazon in order to have that national presence without being into the grocery stores first. And so we were really able to lever 
and to leverage, I should say, all of our channels and be able to reach consumers, especially considering that we only just went national with Whole Foods in May of last year. So we're a 10-year business, and it was only in the past eight months, nine months, I guess at this point, God, time is going really fast, about a year ago that we've launched into our first grocery store. So it's been a fun challenge to reach people and manipulate all those channels in order to churn the business. I love it because I see so many companies, they come out of the cuts and they're like, I need seven brand people on the brand DTC, this, all this stuff. And I'm like, that's cool. However, if we can get sales volume up, you know, the brand can really be a secondary job function under marketing initially to like, let's get volume to restaurants. Let's get purchases on Amazon, like money in the door. <laughs> and then we can worry about if our Instagram is pretty. And I'm saying this, I'm a social media marketer. Like I'm the number one person being like, hey, social is important at the right time for your brand, right? Like coming out of the cuts, I'm always like, we need to get sales like today. Um, yeah. So I love that y'all went that way. People really lose sight of that. And we were also fortunate to have almost stumbled into food service. When you, I thought about starting a food business, we did envision ourselves being in every grocery store across the country and in every home kitchen across the country. We didn't realize the resources that that took, either time or quite frankly, capital. And so once we recognized after about, 15, a year and a half of selling to both restaurants and grocery stores, we're like, wow, we're making 80% of our revenue from restaurants, you know, but we're spending 80% of our time on Instagram. This is not really computing to a growth, you know, strategy for the company. So that's what really allowed us to release ourselves of the pressure of the brand and be able to focus on a channel like food service where the product matters a lot more than the packaging. Yeah, it's this output versus ego battle that I think founders, we all face where, oh, company XYZ is on Instagram and doing something really cool. So I feel like, well, we just have to be doing that. And maybe, maybe not. Like, we got to run our own race. What do our consumers want? Where are we actually selling product? And I think if we can, as founders, like put the blinders on sometimes and just be like, let's evaluate this as a, not as an ego because with our ego, because I'm a millennial and I'm been on Instagram personally, and that's what I use. Let's look at the 15 channels for marketing we have and actually see what's going to like drive revenue mm -hmm. right? And, and, and lean into those channels and master them before we expand out and, you know, start a reality show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we talked about this like before we jumped on the recording, which was that there's a time for everything. There's a time for investing into brand awareness and market penetration and very top of the funnel marketing. And there are times for lower in the funnel marketing and focusing on the sale and bringing in revenue. And we've over 10 years now have cycled through both of those stages. And the reality is, is when you're focused on the top of the funnel, you're likely burning a lot more money than you're making, right? And it's okay to invest and to accept those losses for the sake of what you're gaining, but it's not always the right time to do that. Quite frankly, this year, our marketing strategy is much more focused towards the bottom of the funnel. You know, we're not investing in brand awareness or some of these campaigns on social media ads this year. We're retargeting and really like keeping the budget in check and closer to that checkout. So there's a time and place though for both for brands and to each their own. If you have the money and this is your strategy, then go for, you know, the big numbers. If you don't, there is something to really pulling back, not 
giving into that ego and just really focusing on the structure and the foundation of the business, which has to be revenue focused. Yeah. And I like to call this the difference in acknowledging if your business is a rocket ship or a car mm -hmm. and both go, a rocket ship goes to space. It might blow up halfway there. So, and if fuel is cash, right? Okay. It might get to space. Amazing. And you get that escape velocity and you get into orbit and you become, you know, the next big global brand and you do it in two years. Okay. You become, you know, like a liquid death, let's mm -hmm. say. Sure. Spent, I don't even want to know how much money they spent <laughs> and great. They're everywhere. That's awesome for them. But I think a lot more companies were cars and we maybe put a paint job on that's like a rocket ship paint yeah. job sometimes. And we start to feel that and we're like, no, we just need to get from A to B and we're going to do it a little longer, but we're going to refill our gas along the way. Nobody's going to blow up. It's like <laughs> how I like to think about it. It's so funny you said that. The first person to ever order off of zoomfoods.com is a friend of mine named Scott. And he put in the notes to like, please draw a rocket flames on the jar. And so I like marked the jar up like a like a rocket ship and I shipped it to him. And so it's so funny that you just used that example. It gave me this flashback of like one of those first D2C orders that we shipped out. I love it. I do want to ask, right? So you started the company with your sisters. Now, how long was it just y'all before you brought on staff? So I was really the only one in the business for the first probably year, maybe year and a half, just validating product market fit. So I was doing everything from the sales to the deliveries. I, when we started Zoom, I bought a Prius wagon, the Prius V. It was like a, they didn't have that uh, for a while. And I would just sell from DC to New York because Philly is really nicely situated between all three markets, Philly, DC, New York, and make some sales to some restaurants and maybe some small grocery stores that were taking us. And then, you know, follow up the next week with the delivery with a small route. And so it was just me until my sisters were like, oh, wow, like maybe there's a business here. And then Shelby, my oldest sister, came on. In the meantime, though, we did bring on right away some contractors to help do the social media and my newsletter and things like that. Things that myself not being so detail oriented and not really liking those types of social media channels wasn't doing for the company. So we would outsource small jobs like that. And it only we started bringing people on once not only could I not do something, but I wasn't the best person to do it anymore. Like I obviously wasn't the best person to be fulfilling D to C orders because my time was better spent going out to New York and talking to more restaurants and doing the sales. And so we were pretty strategic about it. I think that we had just a few, I mean, before COVID, I think we were a team of about six even, you know, we had one person helping in the warehouse, one person managing orders and logistics. We've always kept it very lean and very task specific for the sake of the business. But it was fun when it was small. My uh, Rick, who's in our warehouse, he's been with us now for five years. And we were reflecting on how different it was in 2018, 2019, you know, just a few people pushing around a couple pallets, maybe some orders, maybe, you know, fulfilling for Amazon. But now it's a different beast for sure. I love that. I love that growth. I also love the acknowledgement of, you know, what you shouldn't be doing and, that you know, you aren't adding value in those situations. And this is something I think founders and anybody who can get wrong all the time. People will come out and they say, you know, hey, what you're bad at, pay somebody to do and lean into what you're good at. You should do that. But I think that only tells a part of the story. I think also there's value neutral tasks 
things where like I could do it, but I'm not the best to be doing Mm -hmm. it. And then there's also things that I may be good at, but are super low leverage that why am I like the business has outgrown me doing that task, Mm -hmm. right? My time should be put elsewhere. So I love if you like that recognition and audit of the time to be like, okay, I shouldn't be fulfilling these DTC orders. I'm not the best person for this. Let's get somebody else to do that. And then I can allocate my time and my mental power, you know, elsewhere and kind of become a, a lever for growth really in other aspects. So I think that's something that everyone probably is a continual battle throughout life, figuring out which, uh, which tasks we should be, you know. And that's the continuous consideration throughout life. Everything, I always say this when I talk to people, revolves around two major resources, time and money, right? You're either gonna put in the time and do it, or you need to pay somebody else to do it. And so, especially those things that take us longer or don't bring us value, or are not the obviously best use of our time, well, in order to get that done, you're gonna have to pay somebody to do it. It's like, whether it's demoing at a grocery store, it was either me standing at the co-ops, Wednesday evenings, Thursday evenings, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, or I'd have to pay somebody to stand at the co-ops. And then in our personal lives, I'm either cleaning my house or I'm paying a, you know, a house cleaner to clean my house. And keeping those two things in perspective when you're growing a business is really helpful because sometimes the time is not worth the money, right? Like sometimes it you should just pay somebody $300 to make a presentation for you because it's not worth you doing it for four hours or however long it might take. So I love balancing those resources and thinking strategically about how leveraging those two things can help the business grow. What would your split, like I'm, I'm curious, would you say is, you know, how much time you're working in the business versus how much time you're working on the business? A lot of my time, we subscribe to an operating system called EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System. It's based off the book Traction, uh, Gina Wickman. And my seat in the organizational chart now is visionary. So when somebody sits in that seat, the intention is that they are working more on the business just as a whole. But in my seat and in the small capacity of our company, I also focus on fundraising. I mean, that takes a lot of my time, but I would say that's working. That's a strategic, you know, mindset always. So it is kind of working on the business, but it takes real hours. I work on company culture and like employee well-being, overall big strategy. I hold the big relationship. So I'm fortunate because Zoom was able to get to a place where I was, where I have been able to insert people into seats that are doing the in the the day-to-day of Zoom Foods in most cases. I mean, there are still as often as I can, days where I really take a lot of joy in jumping in the warehouse and packing Amazon two packs, you know, and making sure that we're hitting our Amazon goal for the month and things like that. But I'm lucky, I would say 80% of my time is working on the business and just 20 at this point is really in it. I love that. And for anyone wondering, definitely, if you're at a point in your brand, and you're listening to this, and you don't have some sort of operating system, check out traction check out there's a book called Vanderbilt Habits or like my company we use the same but different called Clockwork it's like a clockwork in your business it's the same like it's just a different way to run that but having those entrepreneurial operating systems it's been the most pivotal thing for my company to be like having those defined positions instead of before I was a chicken with my head cut off trying to do everything burning the candle at both ends not understanding how to like I always mixed up delegating and deciding Mm -hmm. so I thought I was delegating no I was deciding I was telling people to go do something and I would have to rubber stamp it before it went out I was a roadblock there like true delegation was go get this task 
and come back to me when the ta- or get objective and when it's done mm-hmm. and understanding where I was uh, stuck. So books like that, I highly recommend anyone listening, go check, check them out. It'll be the best $12 you spend and then you can do the advanced programs and what have you, but get the books at least. So that's awesome. Now, I'm very, very curious on the tahini table. Go Beyond Hummus with 100 Recipes for Every Meal and In Between, your book. I love this. So that's Amy's book for anyone listening. I want to know, was this part of the marketing plan? Like this is the, I love this content marketing, by the way. If this was all like, okay, we're just going to try to get people eating tahini. Like let's just make the entire pie bigger. And if we get a bigger slice at the end of it, amazing. Like, is that how it came to be? Or walk me through that, how you're like, I should do a cookbook. Well, how it came to be was actually not as intentional. No, what happened was my co-author, Andrew Schloss, emailed our company. This was back in 2018, maybe 2017, and said, I just got my order, but it was damaged. And we have a satisfaction guaranteed. And so I wrote back and I, and of course I was reading the customer support emails even you know in 2017. I wrote back, I said, we're happy to ship you replacement product, no problem. He said, I actually don't live that far from your office. Can I come pick it up? And I said, sure. And so Andy walks, if you, nobody here knows Andy Schloss, but he walks three miles through a precarious area of Philadelphia, maybe closer to like five miles from his, you know, home in Northeast Philly and shows up. He has a backpack ready because he's taking a couple of one pound jars back with him. And he asked us, he said, have you ever thought about writing a cookbook? And I said, we've thought about not writing a cookbook because I'm not a chef and we're not cookbook authors. And that's really out of our wheelhouse. And he said, well, I'm a cookbook author and I think that we could write a cookbook together about tahini, you know, with your credibility of understanding the ingredient and uh, your use of it for so long, your passion for it, I can help you write it and we can really co-author this. And so I said, as long as you're on board, I'm on board because, you know, I do not have the skills to do this myself. And so he helped us write a proposal and we got a literary agent, which was a woman that actually I met at a networking event years before. And we shopped it to some publishing houses and it got accepted, which is awesome. Agate, our publishing partners in Chicago were really great to work with. And they greenlit this idea of all the ways that we can use tahini, you know, exactly what Zoom has been preaching at that point for five years and now 10 years, however the numbers work. And it was an amazing opportunity to put pen to paper on all the ways that I use tahini and not in a sophisticated way. You know, I described to Andy how I sometimes just buy store-bought teriyaki sauce and mix in tahini and put it over a chicken chicken and vegetable stir fry. And he said, well, we can just build out that full recipe, right? You don't need to buy the sauce in the store. We can make a full recipe for that. And I shared with him how Jackie made oatmeal cookies in Israel all the time with tahini, or of course, our origin story of our uh, tahini carrot cake. And so the cookbook really came to life. And it was such a gift because it was the most beautiful collection of these things that we're so passionate about, which is ultimately using more tahini when you're cooking. And the timing ended up being very interesting because we were done with the production of the book and it was supposed to launch in the spring of 2020 and it ended up getting pushed back. I mean, a lot of books were delayed. Things weren't shipping from where they were being printed and things like that. It got pushed back to November of 2020. And instead of having to do a national tour and going to a dozen cities and going to bookstores or to restaurants and marketing the cookbook, we were able to build out a Zoom really like a, I guess what we do is a Zoom schedule of demoing the cookbook and demoing these recipes. And it was so valuable. I mean, I 
had stood in stores for four hours sampling tahini and talked to two people, you know, that entire time. And now I was able to cook from my kitchen, these great tahini, you know, creations for 30 people or 100 people or at some capacity, 250 people. I mean, it was really amazing. And we still use it as a marketing tool. We use it for revenue, we sell it on our website. And we also that book accompanies every sample that we send to a potential investor or a buyer or anybody important or helpful that we've been networking with and to just share with them the vision that we have for Tahini. So it has been so valuable, more than I even expected when we committed to making it happen. One, that's an awesome story on how kind of a little bit of serendipity, how things line up. But I also, as a takeaway for the listener here, like thinking about content in a way where how can I squeeze once and have juice forever? Mm. And I think things like that, like a putting together a book, putting together detailed reports online, it could be online stuff, could be a whatever, a video, something, but social parts of it can be so fleeting. So I love when there's investment of time and resource into something truly great like that. And then now it becomes a piece of marketing material for 10 years. And then you could do the updated version. And then like, there's just so many things that can come along with it. So I absolutely love that. Amy, this has been a ton of fun. Now, before I let you go, let people know where they can find some Zoom and where they can connect with you online. Awesome. Well, you can find Zoom Foods on our website, zoomfoods.com. You can also purchase it on Amazon if that's easiest. And we're in Whole Foods nationally, along with about a thousand other doors across the country. So test our store finder page and see if it's working because we all know those are a crapshoot. And again, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Amy Zeidelman. It's been such a pleasure being able to talk. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. And I will put links to both your website and your LinkedIn in the show notes. So if anybody wants to connect, they can just go and click there. Guys, this has been it for the show. Thanks as always. I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. This is Mind Your Marketing, and I will catch you next episode. 